Hello everyone and welcome to the Future of Dogs podcast, a place for the whole dog world to come together and ask the big why and what if questions that will shape the dogs of the future. Join me, Hannah Malloy, as we chat to some of the world's most groundbreaking professionals intent on enriching and evolving the future of dogs. This podcast is in association with Amplified Behaviour, my online learning video library for dog owners and dog geeks. Big thanks to my dog's favourite food and our season one sponsor, Nature's Menu. With over 40 years in the pet food business, Nature's Menu is Europe's leading expert in raw and natural pet food. So let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Future of Dogs podcast and welcome to another wonderful adventure down the road of what ifs as we journey with a new special guest that is changing the world in their particular field. This episode is titled The Future of Dog Breeding Part 1 and today we begin to lift the lid on the global discussion surrounding the breeding of dogs. This is a huge topic, it's huge and it's full of fascinating perspectives which is why today's episode is a part one. My heart is that we will continue to add many parts to the breeding conversation over the coming series until all the delicious voices from many perspectives have been added to our big thought-based melting pot. A quick reminder that if you haven't already listened to episode two, The Future of Dog Conversations with Dr. Henry Cloud, I'd highly encourage you to skip back right now and have a quick listen so that we can all end up on the same page and approach each of these complex discussions with the love and the limits that Dr. Cloud was describing. We want to listen and we want to learn from one another with respect, even if we disagree with a perspective that's being shared. And I say all of this, but actually I am not worried at all about disagreeing with my next guest because I think she is one of the most forward thinking, brave and deeply intelligent women, both academically and emotionally. It's my honour to introduce you all to Dr. Jessica Heckman. Oh, well, thank you. That's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell us, Jess, a little bit more about yourself? I've, uh, I've got your bio here, but I think they'd probably much prefer to hear it from you. So, so tell us a bit more, Jess, about your, Jessica, about your background and, and all of your wonderful qualifications and the size of your giant brain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my giant brain. I, uh, thank you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I have... Um, yeah, I started out uh, as a computer programmer and at one point decided I was getting really into into dogs and and how, you know, what what behavior problems dogs experience and, and why that is. So I decided to go to veterinary school to um, become a veterinary behaviorist to try to figure that out. Midway through veterinary school was like, I don't want to be a veterinary behaviorist. Um, just got the, the research bug while I was in veterinary school. So I also completed a master's uh, as part of that program. And then I went and did a shelter medicine internship uh, at the University of Florida, which was it was fantastic. I'd done veterinary school in New England. Um, and that is a part of our country where there's just not a lot of, of disease or, um, or massive overpopulation in shelters. And so getting to go into the deep South and see how different things were Mm-hmm. was really interesting and eye-opening. Um, and then after that, I went and did a PhD at the University of Illinois um, in genetics um, to continue to scratch that research itch mm-hmm. and um, did my postdoctorate work at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard 
and now am focusing on trying to uh, build and and help to flourish the Functional Dog Collaborative, which is a nonprofit. Uh, which hopefully, I guess we can we can talk more about sort of the details about that. But uh, what we like to say is we're trying to build a new culture around dog breeding. That's amazing. And I mean, that's definitely where I came across you to start with. I think I heard you first on um, the Animal Training Academy, Ryan Cartlidge's um, podcast, and just was blown away, actually, by the stuff that you're doing and, and the way that you're doing it. But I just, just going to roll you right back a little bit, Jessica, for us. Like, what was it that, why did you go through, gen- like, obviously, there's so many things you could research. What was it about genetics that made you go, I just want to chew on this. This is delicious for me. <laughs> um. I remember actually pretty clearly one day I was driving to veterinary school in the morning. I can remember looking out the window and seeing what, you know, the, the scenery looked like. And I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about genetics. And I had been struggling for a while with the fact that I was really interested in brains and how brains work. And whenever I went and tried to do research on brains, um, I was basically told the way that we do that is, you know, we cut heads open and look at brains and I didn't, you know, I wanted to study dogs and I obviously didn't really want to cut dog heads open. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to study other species. And so I was sort of struggling with how this would work. And, you know, for my master's, I did, I looked at hormones where you can sort of, you know, take saliva samples, but it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to this podcast and I all of a sudden had this realization. So this was like, this was probably 2009 or 2010. And I was like, oh, genetics is just taking off in a big way. I hadn't realized until that moment how much the technology was changing and how much we were learning. Mm-hmm. And I all of a sudden had this realization that I could get at how behavior works in dogs, perhaps, um, through that avenue and not have to cut dog brains open. That's amazing. And so you're really using those technical skills that you've got in data analyzing and using the maths and all of the technology and also that amazing brain that just wants to look at behavior and go, why? That's incredible. And so we always ask every guest, uh, Dr. Heckman, to sort of look at their their specific past and present and potential future uh, of an industry that that is just their their heart song. And I know for you that that is definitely breeding. So I, I wonder if you could just start us off with your your big what if. If we followed you down your what if, what is that sentence that that makes you go, what if the world? Just finish that for us and then tell us a little bit more about the way that you're applying that with, with the Functional Dog Collaborative. Yeah. What if the world found a way to breed and raise dogs in homes with real care about managing their their health and that they would be appropriately prepared to live in whatever worlds they set forth into be that urban or rural Um, and what if we managed to do that at a scale such that we could actually provide most or all of the people who want dogs with dogs who've been raised in this very personal thoughtful way um, rather than having to resort as we currently are to producing a large percentage of the dogs that we produce from um, less than ideal environments. Wow. 
Wow, I just love it. I could live in that world already. Um, obviously, my background is in training and behaviour, uh, Jessica. So, you know, I've seen the fallout. I've seen the hopeful hearts and all of these families who are like, I just want this. I just want this dog who can hang out with my children and deal with an hour a day exercise and, and chill out on the couch. And it's so hard, I think, for trainers and behaviourists when you meet certain individuals to go, oh, OK, like this dog was was a little bit broken before you even bought him and it's not your fault and so we can do a lot but this dog's gonna need some extra help like that's been heartbreaking for me to observe as a behaviorist but um tell us a little bit more about how you're applying that what if what is the functional dog collaborative and what do you hope to achieve with it yeah, so it's it's meant to be a group to bring like-minded people together, people who want to see a world like this, um, and to have people start working together to start moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it started out as a community for people to talk. So our initial Facebook group is now, we're getting close to 11,000 people, so it's not it's not hugely massive, but it's a significant number of people great. having conversations about, you know, what are some of the health issues that dogs face today? Mm-hmm. What are some of the behavior issues that dogs face today? Um, and so it's a lot of people who really want to do better for dogs, although there are a lot of people coming from a lot of different perspectives. And so mm-hmm. it can be quite a challenge to moderate sometimes. I think everybody has the best interest of dogs at heart, but they don't always see eye to eye about how to get there. Um, so that is a place for that, that community to sort of come together and, and, you know, talk about what might be next. And then, um, we provide some educational resources for, for breeders and for people who are looking for dogs on our website. And there's a podcast, uh, with a bunch more information, just sort of a lot of you know, this, a lot of this kind of conversation, like you and I are having, mm-hmm. me having this kind of conversation with people who are involved in dogs, dog behavior, dog breeding from a lot of different perspectives. So that's a, another way for people to start thinking about changes and how things might look different and what people might do. Mm, and amazing. then we're, and then we're just trying to build up some structures. So we do have our first breeding cooperative, which is a group of breeders who are uh, breeding with a shared goal um, and breeding sort of within the guidelines of really wanting to prioritize health and behavior and in their case, making dogs to be really good companions and pets. Uh, we certainly would support breeders breeding for you know other types of jobs, but that's what this breeding cooperative is focusing on. Um, and so that's sort of that first tiny little step towards that world of having uh, many different groups of people doing those kinds of things. That's amazing. And, you know, it's it's a hard job, I think, isn't it? Being a pet dog is probably one of the most difficult things to to, <laughs> yeah. to, to create, yes. I think. And yet it's what we all want. It's a really weird dynamic that we've created. And uh, so, like, what do you think the next generation of pet dogs should have in terms of their, like, genetics for behaviour and I guess maybe also physiology? Is there any, what are your goals, you know? What are, what are you heading towards when you're thinking, do you know what we want? We want pet dogs. Like, what are the, what are the caveats to cover um, if yeah. you were going to start breeding a, a healthier pet dog, do you think? Yeah, well, so w- there's, there's 
two big roads to go down there. I think one is health and one is behavior. Mm -hmm. So you have a preference. What do you, where do you want to go first? Oh, good question. Uh, personally, yeah. I mean, I mm, health is kind of obvious. I think let's go down behavior just because it's my geekism and then we'll swing sure. back around to health. I think uh, health can become also tricky. Uh, you've got behavioral health and, and physical, but let's go behavioral health just for now and then come back yeah. to physical. So, I mean, one of the things that I really saw again and again as I was learning more about genetics is that genetics is really important, but environment is really important too. And so you can't say that you're just going to, you know, breed really carefully and then trust that you can produce sort of this, this reliable product, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much stuff that influences dogs besides just their genetics. On the other hand, you can't say it's not that they're a blank slate. It's not that it's all on how you raise them. Raising them is super, super important, but genetics is super important too. And so those two things really are two separate goals that it's important for a breeder who wants to produce dogs who are going to make, and we're talking about good pets. So let's just talk about that That's it. to produce dogs who are going to make really good pets. They really have to think about both things. And so mm -hmm. they have to both be able to make those hard decisions. And I was just talking to someone recently who had to make one of these hard decisions to take a dog out of her program. You have to be able to say this dog, I love this dog and this dog maybe fits well into my house, but does show, well, I have a dog like this. Um, I have a dog who's, who I adore, but who has some aggression to other dogs. So I'm not, I don't consider him a breeding prospect, even though I can manage that. It's mm -hmm. not something that I want to see passed on. Right. Amen. Absolutely. And so, and just on that, because I think, you know, our audience segment is, is, is quite broad and, and really covers the whole dog world from, you know, from vets to trainers to, to dog owners. So, and lots of people ask me this question, but I think you're definitely better qualified to answer it, uh, Jessica. So it, is aggression is fear specifically is that genetically inherited from from one generation to another yes so i would say that all behavioral traits have some genetic component, mm -hmm. but also all behavioral traits have some environmental component. so in genetics we like to talk about the risk of developing something um and so I guess the, I, the best um, analogy I've been able to come up with is if you imagine that your parents, when they give you all your genetics, they're giving you a big jar of marbles and maybe the marbles are all different colors and the red marbles are your risk for developing fearfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and so and we don't know what colors, what color of marbles are in the jar, right? But there's some percentage of them that's red. And yeah. so the higher percentage of red marbles gives you a higher risk of developing aggression. But then environment is someone mixing up all those marbles and maybe pouring in, if, you know, maybe changing the colors of some of them. Um, we're sort of stretching the analogy here. But then when you reach in and pull out marbles, you know, are you going to pull out a red one? Certainly how many red ones that are in there, in other words, how many, how much of a risk your parents gave you has something to do with that. But the environment and how things were mixed up, um, that also has a lot to do with it. So you can certainly have two dogs who are both fearful or both aggressive. You could breed them and have a lovely, perfect puppy. That's very possible. The likelihood is lower than if you bred two parents who were ideal pets, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's all about managing risk and your best bet 
for trying to produce a really good pet is to breed really good pets, but there's no guarantees. Um, and so that's why, you know, then there's a lot of hard decisions of like, well, this dog is, is really nice, but her, her, you know, mother showed some aggression. How likely do I think it is that we're going to pass this on? And then there's some other things that are really important that we definitely want to pass on. So how do we make those decisions? And those are just, those are just tough decisions for breeders to make. Um, but absolutely there is a genetic component to mm. behavior like that. And would you say, so, I mean, I'm, my background is in, in dog body language and, and teaching people how to mm -hmm. communicate with their, with their pets better because, you know, I started in rescue and went, well, I can't fix this here. This is an educational issue. So mm -hmm. let's, yeah. let's just roll it back a bit and see if we can fix the educational issue. Um, and obviously, you know, aggression is a functional behavior. Like it's a necessity sure. for us all to have to keep ourselves safe. And like, I, I wonder when we're looking towards the future and saying, you know what, we want, we kind of want more biddable, I guess, forgiving dogs, dogs who will say it's okay, Tolerant. it's okay <laughs> yeah. to our mistakes and just have that bit more grace. But like, where do you say would you draw the line that actually that aggression was fair? Do you know, like that was, a, that was an acceptable expression yeah. of discomfort. Um, how do we do that? Like, wh where do we go when we're watching and observing dogs and breeding for these traits before we get to the point where we have a dog who's just like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know yeah well, um i think so there's there's two parts of that question right one mm -hmm. question is what's acceptable and the other question is how do we breed to go in a particular direction towards yeah. towards our end goals mm -hmm. and i would hand back to you and other trainers to answer the question of what's acceptable i think it's a really important question yeah. right i mean is a dog who will lift their lip at another dog because they have a really, you know, prized bone with mm -hmm. them. Is that acceptable? I think most of us agree that it is yeah. because there's some amount of like, you know, that's very minor and it's, and guarding food from other dogs is pretty normal. Um, you know, and then on the other end of it, will a dog who sees another dog 20 feet away and has his bone and launches himself to attack the dog. Like that's clearly not acceptable. Mm. So how do we draw those lines? I think those are questions for people like you who work with dogs and, and understand their body language and understand the consequences of certain behaviors. Mm. And, um, and a lot of breeders don't have that depth of understanding and behavior. So I think there is a, a need to build up that relationship between breeders and trainers sure. for breeders to start to understand a bit better what you know what is acceptable what isn't acceptable and and again i don't think we can we can i don't think we can draw that hard line i think we have to keep having those conversations but mm. um but working with trainers more to sort of understand ah you know when my dog does this this is this is really probably something that i i shouldn't tolerate in my breeding line mm. and then to to sort of keep moving in a particular direction i mean that's just selective breeding so in the same way that if you have a medium-sized dog and you want a really, really small dog, you just choose the smallest dogs to breed. Then in the same way that if you have dogs with sort of, you know, sometimes they're tolerant and sometimes they're not, and you want a very tolerant dog, you breed the most tolerant dogs. But again, of course, it's hard because you and I having this conversation in this beautiful, clean, theoretical space. Yes. We say, well, you just breed the most tolerant dogs. That's yeah. fine. But maybe the most tolerant dog has hip dysplasia. Maybe the most tolerant dog is very tolerant, but is also very passive and fearful. Mm. And that's not what you want. I mean, I have, 
I have a dog who, I mean, she came to me spayed, but she absolutely wouldn't be a breeding prospect because when I got her, she was scared of everything. Um, it took me a week to be able to touch her. She would pee every time I tried to touch her for the first oh. week. Mm. Um, you know, so it's really kind of a mess, right? But mm. very tolerant, not aggressive at all. I can do it. I could even, I mean, she would pee at the time, <laughs> but I could, I could do it almost anything I wanted to her. And that was because her her response was passivity, but it was, yeah. that was born out of fear. So it's, it's always a complicated question of what you're breeding for and, um, and unpicking, you know, one behavioral trait from another behavioral trait can be hard. Mm. One of my favorite stories from when I got to see some, I was at a guide dog school and I got to see them testing their one-year-old dogs who'd been in foster care for their first year. And they were testing them to see which ones they wanted to bring into their program. And I apologize for anyone who's heard this story before, because I tell this story all the time because it's a fantastic story. So these are all Labrador retrievers. And one of the parts of the test was, um, was that they had a sandwich in a container on a table and one of the dogs broke away from their handler and went and took the container off the table and destroyed it to get at the sandwich. And then they were like, well, we don't, what are we going to do? We don't have another container for the next dog. And I was like, these are labs. Doesn't this happen all the time? <laughs> don't you have 10 <laughs> containers? And they're like, oh no, no, we've bred them so carefully to be so polite in the house that we've actually bred that out of them. And it's the first dog in a long time that's shown that behavior. And I was wow. like, really? And they said, but as a side effect to breeding them for really good house manners, we discovered that they didn't have a whole lot of initiative. And a guide dog needs initiative. A guide dog wow. needs to be able to say, hey, I'm going to take control once in a while. Even though you're telling me to do something, I recognize that's not, you know, you can't see and that's you're not seeing the danger. Sure. Um, and so they needed dogs with more initiative and they started breeding that back in. And then they started getting dogs who counter surfed again. <laughs> so you can see that things are tied together that, you know, we think of initiative and counter surfing as two separate things, but actually yes. <laughs> yes. from the dog's perspective, it might be the same thing. So it's just all to say is that yes, breeding for a particular trait in some senses is very straightforward. You just breed the dogs that have that trait and you'll keep going in that direction. Mm. In other senses, that is very, very complicated. Such a good answer. And I know, I love that. I've, I've had so many dogs and clients come to me with problems that from my perspective as a trainer, I'm just like, your dog's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I had a friend who had a beagle and the beagle managed to get the bag of treats out of the pocket of the coat. It was a Ziploc bag. She didn't mm. break the bag. She opened the Ziploc bag, ate the treats, turned the bag inside out, no tooth marks. And I was like, what is this nice. creature? <laughs> like, that's, that's amazing. amazing. Exactly. I lost <laughs> a pocket one time because I had left a pocket, uh, you know, a jacket sitting around with treats in the pocket and there was no more pocket. Like, that's it. That's it. Some <laughs> dogs just go straight through. They're like, this right, is right. simple. It's got a berserker <laughs> straight through this wall. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I love that. And, and that must be really difficult for us to, to sort of make these distinct choices. And I think also just practically from a breeding perspective say you are a you know a, a, a well-meaning backyard breeder as we call them in the uk and you breed your dog and it has six puppies and those six puppies go to six different homes and then they grow up it's really difficult i think for the breeder to then go back to those owners and go like how like which one's the best <laughs> you know? which yeah. one's the kindest because you are yeah. also looking at like well actually you went to a really uh, a, a calm home with uh, two elderly people and you're in a house with three children and they kept taking things out of this puppy's mouth and it's <laughs> really difficult like how do you help your breeders to kind of 
choose the best offspring to keep working with in this crazy culture that we live in where puppies are you know flown all across the world how does that work logistically I'm fascinated yeah that's really hard I think that's something that every breeder really struggles with I mean that is the the essence of its genetics and it's also environment and you don't really know what the puppy got genetically Mm -hmm. um you know the puppy could have gotten a set of genes that put it as we would say at very high risk of being calm right very high likelihood of being calm Mm -hmm. um and yet ended up in this household that was such a chaotic household and the and the dog ended up being a you know sort of a maybe a nervous or a high energy dog because of the household even though that was sort of not what their genetics had made it the most likely for them to be it's just this particular environment so how do you piece that apart i i think everyone struggles and everyone you know the the people who try to really try to pay attention to how to bring their breeding stock forward in a particular direction are trying their best to gather as much information as they can and look at that and make good decisions, but it's really hard. Mm-hmm. The guide dog schools have a, a great answer to it, but it takes a lot of organization that pet dog owners, at least currently, really don't have. And those are called estimated breeding values. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a calculation, a mathematical calculation that you can do if you have a large population of dogs, you know who is related to whom, and you have some sort of value for whatever you're interested in. And that could be health or it could be behavior. Um, this has been done with cattle for milk production. Mm-hmm. So you measure whatever trait it is, you put some sort of numerical value on it. So as I said, at the guide dog school that I was visiting, they did this test and they would rate each dog from zero to nine on each particular trait. So they had this number, you know, a separate question of how accurate that is, but they mm-hmm. have this number. And then if they have enough dogs that are related to each other with this number, they can run this calculation through a computer and the calculation will come back um, basically saying this dog. So if you have this particular trait and, you know, zero to nine, fives in the middle, um, this dog is likely to provide the genetics to push this trait towards the nine direction. And this dog is likely to provide the genetics to push this trait towards the zero connection direction. Um, Mm -hmm. But even so, you know, so then they can say like, okay, well, we'll, we'll choose our breeding stock based on that. But even so there's certainly still that massive environmental influence. And so it's not like they can run the calculation and then be like, here's the perfect dog. Uh, the world just doesn't work like that, right? No, exactly. Super hard. And so would you say like for you, obviously you've got a massive data brain and uh, I'm really interested in in the stuff that you've done with Darwin's Ark to yes. collate this like huge pile of anyone who loves research is just like, oh, give us the data. That's amazing. Um, and just I love that there is this place now that is starting to gather as much data. Do you think that the current technology and the way it's going would be able to support the amount of data we have right now if everybody say magically across the world what if the world uh, all got together and said right we're going to fill out the same form today and put all of our data into this system do you think the technology that we have right now is is substantial enough to kind of take that data with brains as amazing as yours and other researchers and and give us a better capacity to to breed dogs uh, to match them and to select for certain traits are we there yet or is that something of the future do you think 
And that's all we have time for for this week. But this is part one of a two-part conversation. So if you want to finish the story, make sure you like and subscribe to catch up with the rest of this conversation on the future of dogs. Thank you.